You are now listening to Theology Applied, a podcast of Eternal City Church, where theology walks the pavement. Welcome to Theology Applied. Today we will talk about sanctification again. The Christian life is lived out Monday to Monday. God is committed to transforming us into the image of His Son. He uses many means and methods to grow us, and no one's journey of growth looks the same. Friends, welcome to another episode of Theology Applied. We are continuing in our soteriology journey. And today we land on sanctification part two. We're going to be spending quite a bit of time in sanctification because it's where we live the Christian life. It's the daily grind, if you will, of walking with the Lord, walking with other people, wrestling with our own sin, putting to death by the Spirit, uh, the flesh. And so we, we can take quite a few episodes on this sanctification topic. So today I want to do a part two. And let's start off with another definition. I think the more definitions, the better, just the more wide of an understanding we have of a topic, the better. So this one comes from John Frame's Systematic Theology, and this is kind of a a mixture of various parts of a few chapters, uh, or rather several pages in the chapter on sanctification. John Frame says this, God's work to make us holy is called sanctification. It's pretty simple. God's moving in us to make us more like himself. You remember last week we talked about Romans 8.29. We are predestined, predetermined destiny, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And that means being holy, being separate, being other. Uh, In every way a human being could be like Jesus, that is what God is doing in us Every day, very slowly, as a tree grows, very slowly, so we grow very slowly into the image of Jesus. In a sense, being restored back into that Imago day before the fall in Genesis 3. So, God's work to make us holy is called sanctification. Gradual growth in holiness and righteousness. Our progress in God's way the way of good works. And so you, you remember James in a former podcast, we talked about faith without works being dead. And that's in the definition of sanctification. We can have a profession of faith, but if that profession is not proved or backed up by working in good ways in the prescription of God's will, then is our profession of faith real? Again, slowly, gradually, over time, we begin to change and we begin to do good in the world. We are less consumed with self and we are more consumed with the well-being of others. So John Frame continues, progress in God's way, the way of good works, the outworking of the new life given in regeneration, meaning There's new spiritual life birthed in us when we're born again, when we're regenerate. And that new life, the new heart, the new spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to work out of us. Begins on the inside and then it begins to work on the outside. Now, the good news of sanctification is this, and this encourages my heart. The good news is it's God working in us to grow us into the likeness of Jesus. 
the writer of Hebrews ends his letter with a benediction, uh, a blessing, and he blesses them with a prayer for growth and godliness in sanctification. And he shows us in this prayer that I'm going to read that it's God working in us to change us and to grow us. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21 says this. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, you could say the senior pastor of all the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, his blood shed on the cross, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The part I want you to see is verse 21. He, he is praying that God would equip you, equip the, the, the receivers of the letter of Hebrews, but by extension us, equip saints, equip Christians with everything good that, so this will flow from the being equipped, that we may do his will, his revealed will, a former podcast, okay? that we may do his revealed will. And God is working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. I love that. So you as a Christian have the guarantee or the promise, if you will, from Hebrews 13 here, verse 21, that God will work in you what is pleasing to him. He will give you the ability and the uh, capacity to do his will, which is pleasing in his sight. And this is through Jesus Christ. This is by what Jesus has done and by the power of of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 is a very important chapter uh, in the letter to the Corinthians. Paul delivers the gospel, which is of first importance. He talks about uh, his being a witness of the resurrected Christ, uh, being called personally by Jesus on the road to Damascus to be an apostle. And, and then he, in, in verse 9, begins to talk about his working not only working out sanctification and growth in godliness, but his efforts in expanding the kingdom of God as an apostle to the Gentiles. He talks about his working harder than any of the other apostles. And that's, that would be kind of arrogant to say, like, I'm, I'm a harder worker than all of them, except for what he follows up with or qualifies. So here we're going to see it's God working in Paul, but it's Paul working. Okay, this mysterious synergism, and I'm going to use that word lightly. We'll get into that again in a minute. So 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 11 says this, For I, Paul, am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, you remember that story. He was traveling with authority from the Sanhedrin to go to house to house and to bring to public trial people who were of the way. Uh, this, this renegade rabbi claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be God. Followers of this renegade rabbi uh, claiming that he is risen from the dead. It was called the way. And so Paul was seeking to execute this sect of Judaism at the time called the way. And so he received authority from the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin, to go and to arrest those and to sometimes have them executed, which we see in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. And so that's what he means when he says, I persecuted the church of God. I was so opposed to this sect of Judaism called the way that I made it my personal ambition to find these followers of Jesus and to bring them to trial and sometimes to execute them. He says, I'm not worthy to even be called an apostle because of the way I treated God's people. But, 
by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's important. So it's the grace of God that pursued Paul, that converted Paul, that totally made him repent uh, drastically. And then he says, his grace toward me was not in vain. In vain meaning empty, without effect. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, meaning the other apostles. I worked harder than any of them. So Paul here is putting forth energy. He's putting forth effort. Then he qualifies and says, though it was not I, it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now, the point of bringing that text into our discussion here is because Paul says, yeah, I worked hard, but it wasn't I. It was the grace that was in me. It was the grace of God working through me that enabled me, that empowered me to do the work I did. And so he says, yes, it was me working, but it was God working through me. And and he doesn't have a problem putting those two together and leaving the tension hang there. And friends, that's what we need to be able to do with sanctification. I will confess, it does feel like at times we are doing all the work. We are putting in the effort. Let's say you want to get up early in the morning uh, before your responsibility starts so that you can read the Bible and pray and spend a half hour, an hour with God, or even 10 minutes with God. And yet your alarm goes off and you feel nothing for that ambition. You're, You're just like, I am so tired. I could do away with this by just hitting the snooze button. You have to put the effort and energy in to not hit the snooze button, hit the stop, and then get your feet onto the ground, stand up, perhaps go make a pot of coffee, whatever you got to do. But you put that energy in and you also, at that moment of decision, have the ability and capacity to say, no, snooze. (laughs) And how many of us snooze, right? But the point is, you feel like you're doing all the work, but yet this text says, and other texts say, as we'll look at in a moment, when you work for God and you grow in godliness and you do the disciplines of the faith, it's God working in you. It's God working in you, but you're also doing the work. All right, John Frame warms us in his systematic theology against being one-sided, okay, meaning it's all me or it's all God. It's not all you and it's not all God. It's both together. And John doesn't like the the synergism, but, but I'll qualify that in a minute. So here's what John says. We should be aware of slogans that disparage one side or the other of the tension, God working or us working. Sanctification by grace alone would be one side. In other words, all God, okay? John says this minimizes our responsibility. Synergistic sanctification. Now he's using the word synergistic in a different way than I'm using it. Synergistic sanctification misses the sense in which all our progress in holiness is by God's grace. So John uses synergistic, not in the way I am. I'm using it in the sense that R.C. Sproul uses it in that it's both mysteriously God and us working. John's using it as in it's me doing it primarily. Okay, so it's just semantics where I don't think John Frame and I would disagree there. Uh, but we must not fall on one side or the other. We must not say it's all on me. 
That's too much pressure and you will fail and you will get frustrated and you will burn out. And so perhaps what you've been doing in your Christian growth or the Christian life or your walk, maybe you've been not relying on God's spirit and you've been doing everything out of your own energy, out of your own efforts, out of what the Bible would call the flesh, which just simply means you minus God, the flesh. You could do good things in the flesh. And they're not pleasing to God because you're doing them out of your own resources, out of your own ability, without the help of God. Or perhaps you're more of the passive type and you're just like, look, God's going to do it. I don't really have to do anything. I just go through life and I really don't even give it a second thought. That's not what, what the Bible would prescribe either. So it's neither you in the flesh getting it done, working hard, discipline yourself and just grit your teeth and do it. It's not that. It's also not, hey, just just let go and let God, you know, just relax and let him do everything. No, that's not what the Bible says either. So what we want to be is in the center on this and say, yes, it's God working. Yes, it's us working. Well, which one is more? Well, I would say that God has to be the one who's doing more of the work. Okay, because God is the one initiating, God is the one empowering, God is the one moving things along uh, in a historical sense, which you play a part in every day. He is the one who is sovereign, He is the one whose will will be accomplished. But that doesn't do away with our responsibilities. And that's what I want to talk about now is we have to take responsibility as Christians for our growth and then for the growth of other people. Okay? Us first, then other people. Now, you have to see this, friends. This, is, this can't be overstated. You must make a decision, and maybe it's now. I will take responsibility for my failures, for my sin, for the way I've been acting, for my attitude, and I will stop placing the blame on everyone else. Friends, if you're a victim and it's everyone else's fault and there's nothing you can do, you're not going to get out period. If all the outside forces are the reason you are the way you are, and that's just the way it is, you will not get out because you have no power in the situation. Friends, that's not biblical. And what we want most is to be biblical. So I want to open up the Sermon on the Mount for just a minute. This is the close of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Jesus has this profound five verses, Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and he starts like this, judge not that you be not judged, okay? And then he says in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, there's so much packed in those two verses. I want to start by saying this. When we are very judgmental people, it does a few things. Number one, it shows that you actually do understand right and wrong because you're able to point it out in someone else. Okay. So the moment you're able to look at someone because you're offended, because you've been wronged, because how could they, how dare they, you immediately show by your being able to judge them that you understand profoundly the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And what you've just done is, as Romans 2 says, you've judged yourself because the ability to point it out in someone else doesn't exclude you doing it. 
So now you understand it's wrong, but you, the one who accuses, the one who judges, practices the very same things. And so by your pointing it out in someone else, you've just condemned yourself. Judge not, lest you be judged. Now, there's a second part in which this also is a warning, because usually judgmental and and very harsh and criticizing skeptical people, they get that in return from people, don't they? So when you're a very judgmental person, you experience the world as being judged as well, because in one sense, it's reciprocal. When you give it, you get it back. Okay. Now listen to this. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Okay? So you do receive that in an immediate way. When you're always judging people and always finding fault in everyone, that gets reciprocated back to you. It's automatic. Uh, in, in another way, at the end of time, if you're not a Christian, your, the measure of judgment that you use throughout your life will be measured back to you. Okay? That Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. In the same way, if you're constantly judging, that's going to come back on you and you're going to receive judgment. He says, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, it's very dangerous to be, in a sense, a self-righteous judging person. Okay. Now that's an important qualification. What we don't mean by that is you make no judgment calls in life. You're undiscerning. It's like, well, who am I to say that anyone is wrong? That's not what is being said here either. It's the sense of I am right and you are wrong. Meanwhile, everyone can see you are wrong too. It's an attitude of self-righteousness that is being uh, warned against here. And how do you know that? How do I know, Chris, you might ask, that what is being said here is talking about self-righteousness rather than being able to call out right and wrong and actually make uh, discerning calls on, on people's morality, which is judging. Um, well, because of the next verse and verses. So let me read verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Okay. Notice the verses that came before it. So the context here is somebody who's able to see this small, tiny fault in someone else, yet they miss this massive fault that's in their own life. That's the context. Therefore, it's you're self-righteously judging someone else. You have major issues, but yet you minimize your issues and you point out the big issues, which are actually small in comparison to yours and other people. That's what Jesus is saying here. In other words, don't point out the tiny thing in someone else's life until you get out the big thing in your life. This is how he continues. How can you say to your brother, verse four, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. See, there it is. You hypocrite, you self-righteous hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, This giant thing in your eye is going to obstruct your view and you're going to end up poking the eye out of this brother when you try to do eye surgery on him. Metaphorically saying, when you try to help someone else with their sin and you try to point out in a self-righteous judgmental way the thing that's the problem in someone else, yet you have massive issues in your own life, you're always going to get back some kind of pushback and nothing's going to go well. The advice here from Jesus, the prescribed will here, if I could say it like that, is you need to look at yourself first before you go looking at other people. 
way, a way we could say that is if you do not take responsibility and own the sin that is in your life first, then it's never going to go well for you when you try to work it out in someone else's life. Now, this generally happens in marriages. This generally happens in close friendships. It's like, look at what they're doing. Look at what they're doing. Instead of, what am I doing? What issue is mine to own? And friends, I'm telling you, if you cannot get to the place where when there's a problem in a relationship and you don't look at self first and say, what am I contributing? What part did I play in this? If you can't do that and it's everyone else's fault but yours, you are never going to progress. You must take responsibility for your attitudes, actions, sinful habits, and way of being that is not pleasing to God. And if you don't look at self first with God's help and repent, you're never going to make progress. And again, if it's everyone else's fault, if it's them It's their attitude. It's their actions. Look at what they did to me. If you're always the victim and you can't look at self, you're never going to progress. Okay, now I I know I got fired up there, but I'm really serious about this. This is one of the keys to sanctification. If the door is locked for you and you're, you're banging on the door, why won't I grow? Why can't I progress? Perhaps you're not taking the log out of your own eye. You're not willing to take responsibility for your own mess and junk. And, and you look at everyone else and it's always their fault and it's never your fault. Is that the case with you? And if it is, This is why you can't grow. This is why you're not growing. We must be honest before God. And the text of the scripture says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We must begin that process with ourselves. The only person you can actually change, believe it or not, in the world is yourself. I know that you like to think, and I like to think I can change everybody else. You can't. The only person you can actually do some work on is you. Now, you can help other people do work, but if they don't do the work, you can't help them. You can't change other people. You must get it straight in your thinking. If I don't take responsibility for my sin and own it before God and ask for his help and say, God, work in me as I work, work through my working, show me what I must do, take responsibility, you will never grow. You'll never grow. Now, in Romans 8, 12 to 13, we see this kind of, if you will, if I could put it like this, this kind of looking at the log and seeking to take it out by God's help, taking responsibility for your own sin and issues. Romans 8, 12 and 13 points at this. So then, brothers, actually, you could say brothers and sisters there because the word doesn't demand maleness. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, meaning we're in debt. We owe not to the flesh. We don't owe anything to the flesh. To live according to the flesh, to live according to the, what is still sinful in us, what is still earthly in us. And then verse 13, Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Okay? If you live by that old resource of you and your efforts and your energies before rebirth, before the new heart, before the Holy Spirit, you will die if you live in that energy, power, and and place. But here's the contrast. If by the Spirit, now here's where the Holy Spirit is in the mix. It's not just you getting it done. 
Yes, you take responsibility, but now if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here we have, okay, I'm taking responsibility and now I'm by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm putting to death the misdeeds of the body, meaning the sinful things I do with my body. I do them with my eyes. I do them with my tongue. I do them with my hands. I go to places I shouldn't go. I, I say things I shouldn't say. I use my, my brain and my thinking to think things I shouldn't. So you, you use your body for godliness. You don't use your body for the flesh. And he says, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, that's a violent way of saying If you grow in godliness, if you grow in holiness, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will experience life. Life. This is the life that Jesus promised. He said, I came to give life and life in abundance or life more abundant. A greater capacity of life that is not just focused on self and self-congratulation and accolation and no, it's a life lived for others by the power of the Holy Spirit and you get the joy, you get the enjoyment. Now, I want to emphasize again, you have to do the work. It's not all God, it's not all you. But you have to make strides. You have to put forth effort. You have to put in energy. Colossians 3, uh, 1 to 10. This is a long verse. I think it's helpful. We'll, We'll just, we'll go through it. If then you have been raised with Christ, okay, qualifier on the front end. If you're a resurrected Christian, a Romans 6, we've been raised with Christ to newness of life. If that's the case, if you're a Christian, this is a command, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, without context, that could be taken very wildly. You know, we could say, well, I should abandon all earthly things and live like a hermit and go out into the woods and just me and my survival skills. And I should not even think about the clothing I wear or the food I eat. But earthly here is in context. And he talks about what he means by earthly in just a minute. So, so firstly, he's saying here, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. And then he says four verse three, you have died. This is Romans six. Again, you died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the mysterious union of Jesus that we experience in the new birth, in regeneration, in being in Christ. Ephesians 1, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the life that we have in Christ has not been yet manifest. It starts to work out in our actions and attitudes, but it's really going to show up when Jesus appears. We will have glorified bodies and we will show forth some of the glory of God in some kind of mysterious way. Verse five, here's the verse, ready? Put to death, therefore, okay? Since you died and since you're resurrected now with Christ, therefore put to death what is earthly in you, okay? Here's what he means by earthly when he said earlier, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So when the context of a verse has two of the same words, and then one tells what he means, that's what he means, okay? Context is so crucial when reading the Bible. We never want to isolate verses, okay? So put to death what is earthly in you. So here's what he means by earthly. You could also translate that, 
therefore your members that are on the earth, okay, meaning your body. And then he says, here's what you are to put to death. Here's what you're not to set your mind on and rather set your mind on the things of God. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are the earthly things he was talking about. And then he says in verse six, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now that's kind of scary. Sexual immorality, pervasive, impurity, pervasive passion. I think those, those along with desire, evil desire are, are all in the sex realm. Those four covetousness, that's the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. And then he says covetousness, which is idolatry to covet is to worship idols because you want something more that God has given you and you're not happy until you have what you don't have. And so you have God, but he's not enough. I need more than God. Therefore that's idolatry. That's why covetousness is idolatry. So he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Okay. These sexual immorality, impurity, passion, sexual passion, evil passion, just bodily passion, an evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. God's wrath is coming for these. In these, you two once walked. Okay, that's important. This is who you were. This is who I was personally. I was certainly defined by sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. That was a great definition for how I lived my everyday life. Okay, I did once walk in these. Okay, and if you're now walking in these and you want free from these, there's hope for you. Okay, you used to walk in these when you were living in them, but now, see, here's the contrast, but now you must put them all away. That's the point, friends. You take responsibility, own it. If it's in your life, own it. And then what Paul says is, put them away, right? So think about putting something away. You ever cook in the kitchen and then you got all the utensils out and all the ingredients out. And then maybe sometimes you just go and enjoy the thing you made and you leave it all out. And Paul here is saying, Put all that stuff away. Put away the sexual immorality. Put away the impurity. Put away the passion. Put away the evil desire. Put away the covetousness. And then I would say, lock the drawer so it can't be opened again. Okay. And then he goes on to say, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. That's the way you used to live. That's who you were before Jesus. That's not who you are now with its practices. Okay. The old self had practices. He just defined some of them. We should not be living like that anymore as Christians. Angry people, wrathful people, malice, which means you, you, you intend harm for other people, slander. You talk crap on people behind their back, obscene talk, just foul jokes and foul talking. Do not lie to one another. Rather, tell the truth, seeing that you've put off the old self. That's not who you are anymore. With its practices, you used to practice these things. No longer. Put them away. Having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's that sanctification. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And yes, it's, it's, it's with knowledge. So Romans 12, 2 do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, sanctified, grow, become more into the image of Jesus in knowledge. Be renewed in your mind, okay? Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This verse in Colossians here says, 
being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now we could, we could easily say, here's what that means. That means, um, we understand what God's will is progressively. And we see that we're not living in line with God's will. And then we, by the power of God, with our working, with our energy, with our efforts, we begin to see transformation. It's always coming to a knowledge of something's right or wrong, taking responsibility if we're wrong, and then by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking to put them away, put those things away that are earthly or unpleasing to God. All right. Now, as we go into further uh, episodes on sanctification, I'll get into the really practical, all right, well, tell me what to do. I don't want to be an angry person anymore. I don't want to be full of malice. I don't want to covet anymore. I don't want to lie anymore. We will get there, okay? Be patient for future episodes. Paul just finished here in 2 Corinthians 7, which is our next text I want to get to. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul had just finished quoting Ezekiel 37. And this is the promises he's referring to here when he begins 2 Corinthians 7, 1. He's referring to Ezekiel 37 and the promises that he just finished chapter 6 with. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, since we have these promises, he just quoted Ezekiel 37, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, or that could be translated flesh, and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So bringing holiness to completion is sanctification. It's you are to live differently now. That old you and its practices is not who you are anymore. And you must remind yourself of that, friends. This is not the only way to grow in godliness. This is one of the ways to grow in godliness. What we're going to see as the episodes roll forward is um, there's not a one-size-fits-all model for growth. It's not formulated. It's not A plus B always equals C. There are many dynamic moving parts to how we grow as a Christian, and there will be some things that help you at some times and some things that you, you will be needing to engage in at other times. And so here, we bring to holiness, holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the key here is fearing God. When we fear God more than we fear man, we actually have the ability to speak the truth in love, to confront in boldness, to not feel like we need to exaggerate stories to impress because who do I have to impress? I have God and he knows all things and he's already impressed with me in Christ. I don't have to impress anybody else. So you don't have to exaggerate stories. Um, So fearing God has many, many implications and perhaps we'll do a whole podcast on that. But Growing in your fear of God is a means to sanctification. Uh, Ed Welsh's book, when, when People Are Big and God is Small, is a huge help there on the fear of man. The proverb says, fear of man is a snare and a trap. But if you fear God, that is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. And the more you fear God, the less you fear people and the more growth you will experience, both positively and negatively. Okay? So, by the Spirit, we bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. All right. But notice, notice before I move past 2 Corinthians 7, let us cleanse ourselves. That looks like you taking action, taking responsibility, putting forth effort. All right. Here's another one. So if the fear of God was a kind of a key to sanctification there, uh, here's another one. 
walk in the example of others who you know are godly. Okay, God made us to be imitators. Uh, in fact, this is kind of what discipleship is. It's, it's more like mentorship. It's more like apprenticeship. Um, Paul does this throughout his letters to the churches. He, he says, walk uh, according to my example, follow me as I follow Christ. He says to Timothy in second Timothy two, um, what, what I entrusted to you and trust to other faithful men who will be able to entrust uh, it to others also. Uh, so there's this kind of imitation and passing down. So to the Thessalonians in chapter four, Paul says this, finally then brothers, again, the brothers there is not demanding maleness in the Greek. It could be brothers and sisters. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Okay? This is not an option. This is we're urging you in the Lord Jesus. That as you received from us, the us there, you have to go back to the very first opening of the letter and see the us is Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. How you ought to walk and to please God. Okay, that's sanctification. You walk a certain way, you live a certain way, and that way pleases God. And then he says, we urge you to walk in that way. And he says, you receive that way from us. Meaning myself and Sylvanus and Timothy, we walked a certain way while we were with you and we want you to imitate us. Okay. Imitation is very important. And imitation demands not only a humbleness to be able to walk after somebody. You're not saying, hey, I got this. I don't need anybody else. I don't need a church. I don't need pastors. I don't need any authorities over me. I, I got this. That's not biblical, friend. That That is a very American, Western, individualistic, certainly not uh, apostolic in example way of thinking about Christianity. Uh, we all need mentors and godly men and women to look up to, to imitate. That is That is certainly biblical. So he says, for you know, verse two, what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God your sanctification. Okay? We, we did hit that verse in the last podcast, but then he opens it up here. This is God's will for you, your sanctification or your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Same thing he said uh, earlier, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control his own body. The Greek says, possess his own vessel, right? It's, it's as if your body is a ship and you know how to guide your own ship. You're able to have self-control, which is the, the ninth fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit in a later podcast. How to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor. Not, okay, so here's the negative. This is not what it looks like. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Yeah, if someone doesn't know God, what do you expect? We expect them to be living wildly in the sexual realm, wildly in the passions realm, just, you know, living hedonistically for their pleasures. That's all that matters. Okay. And he says, no, not you, Christian. You got to control your own vessel or your own body. You take control of you. But interestingly, self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Again, there's that mysterious union of you take responsibility, yet at the same time, it's God moving through you, in you, and enabling you. And he says, six, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in this matter, okay, the matter of sexual immorality. 
Okay, lust. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God has not called you to live a life of sinful sexual immorality in this context, but even covetousness or lying or exaggerating or fearing man. No, he's not called you to this, but in holiness or growth or sanctification. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In other words, Paul's saying, look, this is God's command, not mine. If you disregard this, you're not just disregarding me and Sylvanus and Timothy. You're disregarding God and God is an avenger. Okay. You want to stiff arm God? You're going to have to deal with him. That's what Paul says here to these Thessalonians. Now, we continue to strive or work or put forth energy. Okay, this is the big kind of overarching theme of this episode. Friends, resolve that you need to put in work. But at the same time, don't fall off on the it's all on me side. When you work, you pray and you say, God, I got to do this. I have to take control. There are times where you do have to cut off a hand and gouge out an eye, but you don't do that all on your own. You say, God, I need your help. Please come through for me. Give me the power to do this. Give me the energy I need. Give me the motivation and the drive to do this. Give me wisdom how to do it. Um, So we continue to strive and work with our energy. Hebrews 12, uh, 14 to 17. The writer to the Hebrews says this, kind of closing up his letter. Strive, (laughs) energy, effort, work, strive for peace with everyone. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness, sanctification. So right there, he's saying strive, not just for peace, but for holiness. Work for sanctification. We could say it like that. Without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, that's, that's scary. What he's saying here is what James says in his letter. There are people who have a profession of faith, but yet their faith has no good works to back up that they are genuinely trusting in Christ and have this new life of God within them. Because if the new life of God is within them, it eventually has to come out. Okay? And so if there's not change in life over time, then the profession is false. That is what is said. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's not because it's a work salvation. It's because new life within you that God regenerates and then he puts the Holy Spirit in in you must work out. It has to work out. And so if there's no holiness or no growth and sanctification, you will not see God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Okay. That's interesting. So We obtain the grace of God by our trusting alone, faith alone. This is Romans 3. But at the same time, our faith doesn't remain alone. It it is confirmed. Our faith is confirmed by good works. And so we, we don't fail to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Now that's interesting. He goes to talk about root of bitterness. Now bitterness comes when people have wronged you and you don't forgive them and you continue to dwell on what they did. How could they? How dare me? And, and just the thought of someone's name brings up these intense feelings within you. There's a root of bitterness within you. 
There are two levels to forgiveness. We must forgive someone as we've been forgiven. And then there's a reconciliation level, which unless they repent of the sin, you can't have a good relationship with them. But you're always responsible for for level one forgiveness. As you've been forgiven, forgive. Always, no matter what. Now, the second level of forgiveness, which is reconciliation, they have to be able to confess and then you have to forgive them and you can work towards reuniting a relationship. But that first level forgiveness If you don't, you will become bitter, friends. And there are many Christians walking around with not just one root of bitterness, but many roots of bitterness. And it defiles them and it destroys them. And they're they're sour people to be around. There's no joy in their life. They're always thinking about who wronged them and how they wronged them. And the tape replays over and over. Friends, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Uproot that bitterness that's within you. That's the... You, you think that you have power over them in a sense because you remember them and you rehash it in your mind. Meanwhile, they actually have power over you. They're not even here and they're, and they're controlling you. They're making you a sour person. They're ruining your life because the memory keeps replaying. So he says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. He's saying that you got to get rid of bitterness because bitterness unchecked and unrooted causes people to be defiled and not be holy. That no one is sexually immoral. Okay, that one has come up on every one we've read. Now, in our culture, sexual immorality is just normal. It's like, what do you mean? What's the problem here? There's no problem here. For Christians, we must live godly in our sexuality because God did make us sexual beings, but he made us sexual beings to be under control and to be expressed in a context of marriage alone. Okay? So he says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. You remember Jacob and Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. So controlled by your bodily passions that you're willing to give up the promises of God and the inheritance of God for a a little meal. You can't even control your own bodily appetites that you would sell something so valuable for something so small. That's That's the point here. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. In other words, there will, become, there will come a time where you can't repent anymore. Okay? It, it's over for you. The second chances are gone. Okay? And that will happen when you die. When, when you're alive, you still have time. Okay? You, you, you always have time to repent. Now, in his case, it was already done. The deal was done. He sold it. He couldn't get it back. The blessing was already given. Uh, and he did get a blessing, but it was not the covenant blessing. So let's, let's make some application and let's finish this episode up. Okay. Big application for this one is you have to take responsibility and you have to put in the work to grow. Period. If you're not willing to put in the work, if you're not willing to take responsibility, if you're not willing to stop looking at everyone else, they're the reason you're the way you are. They're the reason you have these issues. It's them. It's what they know. You take responsibility for you and that's all you can do. You have to let God deal with other people. You have to let God deal with the actions of other people. Now, now that takes some nuance. If you're in an abusive relationship or something, you have to take action to get yourself out of there. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is you living as a victim and saying, I can't change because of others. That's what I mean. Don't take me out of context here. You take responsibility for you and by the power of God and with the help of others, 
Others can't change you, but they can come alongside you and walk with you and be an example and, and seek to be a, an apprentice type to you. But you must make the efforts, okay? And sometimes that means drastic efforts. Like Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Sometimes to make strides in godliness, holiness, or sanctification, you have to take drastic, crazy measures to see that happen, okay? Sometimes it literally means getting rid of your internet. Sometimes it means humbling yourself and, and apologizing, not for something you didn't do, but for something you did do that you just can't stand the person and you, you got to do it. You have to humble yourself and apologize and, and ask for forgiveness. Even if they won't give it, they'll never forgive me for, okay, well, you, you got to at least do your part. Humble yourself and go say you were wrong and ask them for forgiveness. And then you've given the ball to them and it's up to them to play ball, but you've done what you could do. All right. Number two, remind yourself often that God is working as you seek to put to death what is uh, of your former life. Okay, so remind yourself often, okay, yes, I'm doing this. Yes, I'm setting my alarm early. Yes, I'm getting up and reading and praying. Yes, I'm going to confess sins to other people. Yes, I am uh, choosing not to click on that site on my phone or look at that picture or look away physically. Yes, I'm doing these things, but God, you're doing it in me. And oh God, would you do this through me right now? I'm struggling. Help. So you're constantly throwing out the the emergency flares to God and saying, I need you come and help. This is what it means by pray without ceasing. We constantly need God's help. It's not all on us, but it is on us. That's a good way to say it. It's not all on us. It's God working in us and through us, even giving us the will to do the right thing, but we have to do it. We have to act it out. So remind yourself that in your working, God is working. It's not you on your own. That's very helpful and important. Thirdly, it's time to establish some new habits, okay? We need to get into new rhythms of life, new rhythms of doing what we do. If there are certain things that after you participate in that thing, you always sin against God, think about what happens before you sin against God. And we need to start cutting those things out. You, so it's, it's been said like this. Listen, if you don't want to smoke cigarettes, you should never buy them. Seems simple, right? If you don't want to drink alcohol, you should not have it in your house or presence, and you should probably not go to a place where you have access to it. That that's simple. Why tempt yourself? Okay. Why you know watch movies with nudity in it, even if it's not straight up porn? Why put yourself in that situation when you know you have a lust problem and you can't get it out of your head? Just cut off all nudity in movies. Yeah, that cuts out almost all movies. So cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. That, that's what I mean by taking drastic measures sometimes. You have to do what you have to do. You have to establish new patterns, new rhythms of life, and a new way of being in the world as a new Christian. Remember, set your mind on things above, not on what is earthly. That means there's going to have to be some drastic changes. And yes, God works them in you, but you need to take some action too. Okay, so new habits uh, create new ways of being in the world. Now, we'll do a podcast on habits period. Okay. I think that's a very practical element of sanctification, new habits, new ways of, of living life as a Christian, practical wisdom like the Proverbs, but you need to take steps to create new habits and put yourself in, put yourself in new situations. 
Number four, pray continually for God's strength and guidance through this journey, trusting that his word is true and that he will not fail to give you what you need to grow. Okay, this is we're not relying on ourselves, but we're constantly asking God for the help. Now, this could be something as simple as you're having a conversation with a friend and all of a sudden the conversation goes from the basketball game or the baseball game to something deep in their life. At that moment, you're conscious like, okay, I need God's wisdom here. I need his help. And so you pray. Just while you're talking, God, I need your help. Give me wisdom. Give me the words to say. Help me to understand with your understanding and not my own. If you're tempted to to lust or to look too long, God, I don't want to look yet in, in my flesh. I do want to look. I need to win. You need to win. God, give me the victory. Help me not to look. And so you're battling in the moment as situations arise. How do you battle? You call out to God. You involve him in your daily life. Now think about this. The God of the universe being involved in your moment. Think about that. That's amazing. It's not just you on your own, just materialistic you and materialistic others and the materialistic world, atoms and molecules only. No, there's a supernatural, invisible world that when you call upon it in the good sense, God comes and involves involves himself in your life at that moment. That's amazing. And yet how many of us avail ourselves to that kind of power? Many of us don't. We fail to because we're not in the rhythm. We're not used to it. I'm going to end with uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 to 11. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Okay, there it is. His divine power, so God's power, has granted, given to us Christians, all things that pertain to life and godliness or growth and sanctification. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Okay, the promises of God are very important. We own them. They're ours in Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Having given us promises so that through them, through the promises, through standing on them, through reminding God of them, reminding yourself of the promises, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's specifically the promise of the gospel, forgiveness of sin. You you partake in God's nature because the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, okay, you get new desires out of a new heart. You have new power from the Holy Spirit. For this very reason, okay, verse 5, make every effort, every effort, you have to do something. So you strive to do this, okay? Because you have this new power in you, because you're partakers of the divine nature, you do this. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, okay? So virtue means right living, virtue with knowledge, so you add knowledge and and growth in God's will to the virtue and knowledge with self-control. You become more self-controlled when you learn God's prescribed or revealed will and self-control, steadfastness. You become grounded like, like a giant tree with roots that are going deep into the ground and the storms come yet the tree doesn't fall. It withstands and it continues to produce fruit in every season. Like Psalm one steadfastness with steadfastness, godliness, holiness, sanctification, And godliness with brotherly affection, loving other Christians, okay? The family of God, doing good to them, loving them. And brotherly affection, love. That's the greatest command, right? 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, there's progressive sanctification right there. You have the qualities. Yeah, they might be there just a little bit. They're 10%, they're 15%, they're 30%, but they're increasing. Man, I'm growing in my love. I'm growing in my steadfastness. I'm growing in my self-control. I'm growing in my virtue and I'm growing in my knowledge. That's progressive sanctification, friends. If you see some growth, I'm not where I was a year ago. I'm not where I was a month ago. I'm not where I was last week. That is fantastic. That's progressive sanctification. Be encouraged that you see growth in your life. Sadly, we're never gonna get to where we wanna be. We gotta die for that. But we can progress in this life, okay? Whoever lacks, did I skip? No. Yours increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So you grow in these qualities here, and they increase, and they keep you. Those virtues, those qualities, those items that were just listed, those actions and attitudes, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whomever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Okay, if you're not seeing these things progressing in your life, you're blind and you're, you're not progressing. Therefore, brothers, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent. There's, the, there's that effort. There's that energy again. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Okay? We don't create our election. We don't create our calling, but we do confirm that we are elect and that we have been called unto God. How? By working out these actions and attitudes. By working out these qualities in our life. Okay? And he says... Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, practice these qualities, you doing them over and over and over, practice these qualities, you will never fall. Wow. <laughs> if you practice these things, you will never fall. For in this way, there will, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, good works do not provide us entrance into the kingdom, but they confirm that we have entrance into the kingdom by our calling, by our election. All right, friends, I've said a lot today. My, my ending exhortation and encouragement is this. Maybe you haven't been putting forth the energy. Maybe you haven't been putting forth the effort. You need to get to work. But as you're working, you Understand, acknowledge, and call upon the power of God because it's God working in and through us. Okay? You have to put in work, but in that working, you must realize, acknowledge, and then call upon the power of God to work in and through you. All right, we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>